This is the second session of our Get a Life series on organizing your life around your purpose. That's what this series is about. And the notes for last week were three pages of introduction. So if you were not here last week and uh, able to get those, then uh, we we can get you a set of those uh, very easily. If you'd like those, you can listen to last week's session and all of our sessions on our website. So if you'd like the notes, let the folks at the Information Center know. Give them your name and email, and we'll get those to you this week, okay? But we'll start this set of notes now today, picking up on the theme began last week, which is that life needs to be pursued intentionally rather than haphazardly. And last week we gave the benefits of knowing your purpose, but we also gave a number of difficulties that one will have if he or she does not know their their purpose. And today we're going to get into, and over the next few weeks, looking at what the Bible says our purpose is and trying to give some instruction on how to order your life around it. All right, top of page one. I say, a life of purpose must be intentional. That is, a life lived for the purpose God has given must be consciously ordered around it. Now, you see in those two sentences that I've emphasized the words intentional and consciously. And I'd like to take a few minutes to explain why I do that. It's my experience that most, the vast majority of Christian people do not live their lives intentionally and they do not consciously order their lives around their purpose. Instead, the way most Christians live their lives is with the commitment to live with integrity, live with biblical values in whatever I'm doing, but not choosing whatever I do based upon my purpose. Rather, living in in a, living in a, a way of integrity with whatever I choose to do, but not choosing what I do according to my purpose. So whatever I happen to be doing, as long as it's not illegal, as long as it's not overtly sinful, then living for God's purpose means just enjoying whatever I happen to be doing and doing it in a way that's not inconsistent with what Scripture says uh, is with integrity, that shows the character of God. Now, of course, all those things are right and true. But the missing ingredient there is the intentionality of actually choosing what it is I'm going to do. So most people live their lives not choosing consciously and intentionally what they're going to do based upon their biblical purpose. Rather, they choose what they're going to do based upon circumstances, whatever it is they like to do. As long as it's not overtly sinful, something that will get you thrown in jail then do that and do that in a way that reflects Christ and therefore you're doing what the Bible tells you. And I'm going to try to make the case that that's not right. That it is not for us to simply do whatever we choose to do in a Christ-like way, but rather what we actually choose to do must be to advance Christ's mission. So let me give you and try to explicate that from the passage that some of you are thinking of right now. Some of you are thinking of 1 Corinthians 10.31. 
And whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10.31 Now the way that verse is understood by most Christians, that is my unscientific survey, you know, 40 years of nearly 40 years of adult life talking to people about this. Most Christians believe that 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat, drink, whatever you do, means do whatever you want. Again, with the caveat, it's not sinful. It's not going to get thrown in jail. And then whatever you choose to do, do it to the glory of God. And yet in that context of 1 Corinthians 10.31, I would suggest to you that it's actually different than that. That 1 Corinthians 10.31 is not saying... Whether you, whatever you choose to do, do it to the glory of God. But rather, choose only those things that are to the glory of God. Now, why do I say it that way? I say it that way because 1 Corinthians 10.31 is the summation, it's the conclusion of an argument that goes all the way back to chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians. And that's why... 1031 begins with a a connective word, therefore. Therefore, based on all the stuff that's been said previously, whether you eat, drink, or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. So what is the stuff that goes before that? Well, what goes before 1 Corinthians 1031 goes all the way back to chapter 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. So here's the way 1 Corinthians is laid out. And then we'll come to chapters 8, 9, and 10 and remind you of what those say. But in 1 Corinthians, the letter that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, which he had founded, and he had spent 18 months there, he's now writing back to them to correct problems that they had. And how does he know that they have problems? Because in chapter 1 and verse 10, he says, Some from the household of Chloe have told me that there are quarrels among you. So the first source of information that he has about the difficulties at the church in Corinth is from these people from the household of Chloe. We don't know who Chloe is. Therefore, we don't know who comprised the household of Chloe. I don't know if Chloe lived to tell a story after being outed by Paul as the snitch who told on the rest of the church. I've often wondered that. When Paul writes, some from Chloe's household have told me, you guys are a wreck. I'm wondering what the reaction was in Corinth to that. But nevertheless, he says, I've learned this through them. And he, and he deals with their divisions and the pride that underlies those divisions among them in the opening chapters. You'll remember that going into chapter 3, he says that some of you say, I'm of Paul. Some say, I'm of Apollos. Some even say, I'm of Christ. Remember that? And you're divided in these loyalties because of your hero in the faith, your favorite TV preacher for it to be modernized for us. And then their divisions go so far as to allowing rank sin, sin that's not even tolerated among the pagans, chapter 5. And you're going to need to expel this immoral brother from your midst. Chapter 6, these divisions go to the point that you're taking each other to court 
and civil lawsuits against one another. In chapter 5, there's divorce. And the issue of divorce and remarriage, or chapter 7, excuse me. And the issue of divorce and and remarriage. And the entirety of chapter 7 deals with that. But then when you come to, at the beginning of chapter 7, right at the top of chapter 7, here's how it starts. Before dealing with marriage and divorce and remarriage, he says, now about the matters you wrote about. Now about the matters you wrote about. So the first six chapters have been primarily based on, apparently, information from the snitches at Chloe's house. And then when you come to chapter 7, Paul apparently has another source of information. There's the stuff you wrote about. So maybe the household of Chloe and Chloe and friends got off okay in telling Paul the church is a mess because they apparently realized they were a mess to some extent because they wrote to him and said, what about these things? And that writing, apparently, based on what Paul says after that, had a checklist of things that they were having trouble with. One of them was divorce and remarriage. Now about the matters you wrote about, chapter 7 and verse 1, colon. Here's what I tell you about marriage, divorce, and remarriage. And then chapter 8 starts this way. Now about food sacrificed to idols, colon. So here's apparently another item on that checklist. You guys are having a number of troubles with divorce, marriage, and remarriage, and here's another thing that you need some help with for me to clarify, so let me clarify it. What do we do about food that has been sacrificed to idols? That's chapter 8, and that discussion goes all the way through chapter 10, and then... An application is made of that with regard to the Lord's Supper in chapter chapter 11. And then chapter 12 starts a new checklist item. Now about spiritual gifts, colon. And then he goes for that. So you got now about the matters you wrote about, marriage, divorce, and remarriage, food sacrifice to idols, spiritual gifts. Chapters 8 through 10 deal with the food sacrifice to idols. Now you all remember what was going on with that that Corinth had a pagan temple in its midst, to which, prior to coming to Christ, the church, the people that, that comprised the church in Corinth were accustomed to, to going. And their worship included temple prostitution, and it included sacrifice of animals to, to idols at the, at the temple. And we're told that after the sacrifices were made, the meat was then sold in the, in the market, the temple market, and that the meat was discounted and you could get it cheaper than you got at the uh, regular store. So people were accustomed to buying that. So should I, should I buy this stuff? Should I serve it? Should I eat it? You know, we're not, we're not going to the temple anymore. We just like the good deal you get on the meat. So what should we do about that? And beginning in, in chapter eight, Paul says, look, we know, I know, and most of you know that an idol is nothing. That idols can't talk, they can't do anything. And the meat is just meat. So all things being equal, if you can get a good deal on the meat, get a good deal on the meat. I'm paraphrasing what he says. The idol's nothing, the meat is nothing. It's just meat. All things being equal, then do what you want. 
You want to get a good deal on the meat and you like the meat, buy the meat. But all things are not equal. And here's why. Because some of your brothers and sisters might be emboldened to sin and violate their own conscience, which is pricked because of the memory of what went on in the temple and what this meat is associated with. And therefore, your criteria for making a decision about this is not, what do you want to do? Is it cheap? And will I say, thank you, Lord, before I eat it? He says, do that. All things can be eaten with thanksgiving. But that's not the only criteria. The other criteria is, how is this going to affect somebody else? And then he spends some time talking about love. The fact that knowledge puffs up. Knowledge makes proud. But love is willing to do what's, my paraphrase, in the best interest of another. So your knowledge that this is just meat and the idols are just deaf and dumb and they can't do anything should not be used as an excuse to offend, that is, violate the conscience of your brother by prompting them to sin against their own conscience. So take into account what love would dictate in your relationship with others. Put others before yourself. Well, why? Why should I do that? Uh, Well, I, one, I, Paul, who am writing this to you, have ordered my life this way, he says. And when you get into chapter 9, he says, look, I'm an apostle. That's how chapter 9 begins. Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen our risen Lord? And yet in that chapter, he goes on to say, despite the fact that I'm an apostle and I'm above you in my position, Nevertheless, I condescend for the sake of others not to do certain things that are perfectly fine. He says that uh, I've chosen not to take a wife with me on my, on my journeys. He says I have, I have not used this right. Not that there's anything wrong with having a wife with you on your journeys. And he gives examples of other brothers who, who do that. But I have chosen for the sake of... Of, of, of others, and for the sake of a larger cause, my ministry, not to do that. And he gives, a, he gives a number of things in that chapter that are perfectly fine to do that he has chosen to give up. And he, and he uses that phrase, I did not use any of these rights. So should I eat the meat that's offered to idols? Or should I not? Well, all things being equal, it's just meat and they're just idols. And you could go ahead. If that's the only consideration, go for it. But there's another consideration, and that is the consideration of love for others. And that love for others is a reflection of the Christ that we claim to follow. So if I don't show love in the choices that I make, then I'm not glorifying God in what I do. How am I not glorifying God? Because I'm not displaying the character of God in what I choose to do. You remember that the glory of God is the display of the character of God. So if I'm not displaying love in what I choose to do, I'm not displaying the character of God. So he goes through that whole discussion, including as you get down to chapter 10, verses 23 and 24. In chapter 10, verses 23 and 24, he 
quotes them. In fact, if you were to look at chapter 10 and, and verse 22, or excuse me, verse 23, you would see this phrase in, in quotation marks, that all things are lawful. And it's in quotation marks. Now, why is it in quotation? Because it's a quote from them. That's what you, prideful, this is the brown version again, you prideful, selfish Corinthians say. I've already established in the previous chapters that you are prideful and selfish and looking out for number one. And so you say all things are lawful. But I say all things are not beneficial. All things are not constructive. And then he repeats it. You say all things are lawful for me. And he says, but I will not be mastered by any of them. Now, that in chapter 10, toward the end of chapter 10, is a repeat. He says the same thing in chapter 6. In chapter 6, verses 12 and 13, same routine. You guys say all things are lawful for me. And remember what chapter 6 is. They're going to court against one another. These civil suits against each other. All things are lawful for me. So this is clearly something that they prided themselves on. I've got freedom in Christ. I can choose to do whatever I want. All things are lawful for me. That's all that matters as long as I don't commit a crime in pursuing it, as long as I don't sin in the way I do it. What I choose to do is up to me. And Paul says, no, it's not. It's not just whatever you want to do. It's whatever brings glory to God. That is, whatever displays the character of God. So then, at the end of chapter 10, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, you do it all to the glory of God. So, what I choose to do and whether or not I choose to do it is what's at issue in chapters 8, 9, and 10. Not just, I choose to do it, then make sure I do it in a godly way. And that's the way most Christians, in my experience, have interpreted 1 Corinthians 10.31. Just choose to do what you want, and then as long as you do it in a godly way, then you're bringing glory to God. Rather than 1 Corinthians 10.31 actually opening up options for you on what you do. 1 Corinthians 10.31 actually restricts your options. Because now it's not just anything that's not sinful. It's whatever is best. Whatever is best for others and whatever will advance the glory of God. That's what I choose to do. So now when you, I encourage you, when you think about 1 Corinthians 10.31, think of it that way. Think of it in terms of these restrictions that God places on us to order our lives and make our choices based upon his character, based upon the pursuit of his glory. Now back to page one in your notes then. That's why I say a life of purpose has to be intentional. That is, a life lived for the purpose God has given must be consciously ordered around it. Now, who does this then? Who is it that sits down and consciously and intentionally says, I'm going to order my life around the conscious pursuit of the glory of God? 
Well, contrary, I say in that next line, to popular notions, those who give themselves to active involvement in the Lord's work. And we're going to see in subsequent lessons that it is through the mission that God has given to the church that we collectively pursue his glory. That those who give themselves to active involvement in the Lord's work and the well-being of others are not generally independently wealthy and therefore simply have time to kill. You know, so some of you, you look at people that are really involved in pursuing the mission. And you go, wow, wouldn't that be nice? To not have to have the concerns of everyday life and a real job. Well, the truth is, most, the vast majority of people, you know, we've got retirees in our, in our congregation. I thank the Lord for the retirees and the time that they use to invest in the Lord's work. But most of our people are not retired. They have work-a-day jobs just like you do, but they consciously and intentionally order their lives around the pursuit of the Lord's mission. Rather, those who do this, I say, have made a determination not to kill the time they have so it can be used for productive purposes. So at the outset of this series, last week I tried to give you the benefits of knowing your purpose, and now I'm trying to convince you This is the hard part, that you need to reorder your life according to your purpose. That there are some things that you need to put aside and other things you need to replace those things with, even good things. People who pursue intentionally and consciously the Lord's mission have done that. And it's not because they just have more time than everybody else. They allocate the time differently. To use it for productive purposes. So here's a chart that contrasts the two mindsets. The one mindset is life is ministry, and the other one is ministry is life. Now, life is ministry on the left is the wrong one. That is, that whatever I happen to be doing in life, that's my ministry. That's the life comes at me, and then I seek to redeem whatever Life brings my way. Life is ministry. But there's the other mindset that says ministry is life, that I need to pursue ministry and that becomes my life. So you've got the one mindset that's life is ministry, that's just whatever I happen to choose to do or whatever life happens to choose for me. And then there's ministry is life. I'm consciously and intentionally pursuing ministry. And how does that affect you? Well, it affects you in terms of, I say, motto, method, and, and ministry. You know, the motto of the life is ministry person is do things right. That is, whatever I find myself in, not whatever I've pursued to be in, whatever I just find myself in. Remember, it's just life coming at me. Then whatever that is, do it, do it right. So this is whatever I happen to be in. You know, do it for the glory of God. And of course, again, you know, if, even, if you, even if you don't end up doing what I'm suggesting you do, reorder your life intentionally and consciously. If you stay with the life as ministry approach, then I'm very thankful that you do whatever you do to the glory of God. Okay? Don't kill anyone. Don't steal anything. So that's all good to do things right. But the other side, the other mindset is not just doing the things that come my way right. It's actually choosing the right things. 
do right things. Well, how do I know what those right things are? They're the things that help me advance the mission. So the motto is different. The method is different. On the one, life is ministry where it just happens to you. You do, and then you justify. That is, you you do whatever it is. It's the last time I'm going to use this caveat, assuming it's not illegal or overtly sinful. You do whatever it is, and then think about how it fits might fit in. The other says, I think about how it fits in before I do it. I consciously and intentionally say, should I buy this thing? Should I spend my time this way? I think about it, justify it first, then do it or not do it. And in terms of ministry then, the one approach is simply caught. You know, I, I'm, I'm in the stuff that I'm in. Because this is the stuff I've chosen to do. It's not illegal or overtly sinful. And so if I can do ministry while I'm at it, that's a beautiful thing. It's caught. But the other approach, it's actively and intentionally sought. That I'm seeking to do ministry. And I'm seeking to choose the things I do for effective ministry. Now, before we go on, I think you all can see that if you're going to take an approach like this, it means rethinking, doesn't it? Because what most of us have done and most of us have been taught, either explicitly or by what's been modeled in front of us, is that we go through life and life happens to us rather than us happening to life. Life happens to us. And we just catch whatever's happening and then while we're, while we're at it, you know, we do our devotions on, in the morning and we you know, hope we get a chance to talk to somebody about Christ as we're doing whatever it is we want to do. But we just catch it and just go with it. But if you do the right side of this, the right column, now there's some thinking to do. Now I've got to think about what I do and why I do it and the choices I make. Now let's get that down to the practical level a bit. And that's what the remainder of those columns is. So you have things that I call common vocations. Common. That is, these are the kinds of things that are common to lots of people. And by vocation, that comes from a Latin word, vox, which means voice or calling. So vocation means calling. God has called us to certain things that are common to us. Work is one of them. So everybody here has work. Whether you get a paycheck, my wife does not get a paycheck. But I don't want her job. She works. And if you ever ask her, do you work, you'll wake up two days later. And you won't do that again, okay? So housework is is still work. It's work that she's called to. So it's a common calling, a common vocation. Parenting, all sorts. I'm just giving examples here of common kinds of things, stations in life that we all do. 
But then there are common activities that we that we engage engage in. You know, there is no calling, as far as I know, to vacation. I know you think there is. I know on a normal February, this is a pretty good, an excellent February we're having, weather-wise. On a normal February, a lot of people feel called, pastors feel called, to leave their churches in northern states and go to Arizona and Florida. I felt that calling a few times in my life. But these are common activities that we engage in and, and good activities for us to engage in. And we intend church and we do shopping and all right. And I and, and shopping's necessary, right? You gotta get the groceries, all of that. And I would I would even say vacation, if rightly understood, re- as rest is a necessary thing as well, if rightly understood. So these are all necessary things, and they are common necessary things for us. But then the blank lines are discretionary activities. Discretionary activities. And you need to, and I need to, we all need to think about what are those discretionary things. These other things are the things I have to do. I have to work. If I've got kids, I've got a parent. If, and, and all of us need to engage in these other activities... But what about your discretionary activities? What about the things you don't have to do? That's now the intentional allocation of your time. You have discretion about it, about how you're going to use that time. And not just the time, but the money and the talent that God has given you on these discretionary activities. And the motivation between the two is radically different. If you take the life as ministry approach, life just happens to you rather than you happening to life, then you will need, you will need to be coerced into involvement in the Lord's work. Because that's not your purpose. That's not the thing under which you're aligning everything else. You've got all this other stuff going on and you're trying to fit the mission around it. So guys like me, if I'm dealing with somebody in that situation, we're compelled to coerce you to get involved. Coerce you to order your life around the mission. Now, you need to think about where you are in all of that. Do I need to be coerced to give my life to the mission? Or am I willingly and intentionally, and if I'm not now, I'm willing to, as you teach me how to do this, order my life around it. But a lot of people need to be coerced. And what happens is they come to a place like this that's big on the mission that God has given us and God's glory being pursued through that mission, as I'll document later. And you come to a church like this and you go, you know, I like these, I like this place. I like these people. There's a lot of things I like. I'm going to keep coming. And so, thankfully, you keep coming. But every now and then, the pastor gets on this kick about being, like, involved. And so, i got to find something to get involved with to get him off my back. So, I'll sign up for something. I'll sign up for something that I can fit around all the other somethings that I'm doing. Well, if that's the best we can get, okay, we'll roll with it, Okay. But what that approach does is it says, I've got all these discretionary activities. There's just all this stuff I like to do. 
And I'm going to fill in one other blank, this thing pastor wants me to do. And I'd suggest to you that we need to look at all of these, all our discretionary areas. And all of the discretionary time and money and use of our talents that all come from God and ask ourselves whether or not we are intentionally and consciously using those for his mission in the pursuit of his glory. And if that's the case, we don't have to be coerced. In fact, you look at the other side, it requires restraint. You see that bottom right? I know people, I'm glad to tell you, I know people who fit that right column. We've got a lot of them in our church, a ton. Thank God. I've known a number of them over the years. And these are people that you have to restrain from doing more and more stuff. You have to actually tell these people, no, you can't do that. Because you're already doing too much stuff. And further, if you do all this stuff, that means other people aren't. And they need the privilege and learn the privilege and joy of doing that as well. And so those people have to be restrained. Have you ever heard this? If you want to get something done, give it to what? Give it to a busy person. And that's that's the person you have to restrain rather than coerce. So, bottom of page one. We must intentionally live for God's purpose. Which requires we have a clear understanding of what our purpose is so that we can order our lives around it. Now, before identifying our purpose from Scripture, here's a sample tool that can be used by one who is determined to arrange life around purpose. And the next several pages in your notes are all about this thing. You see at the top of page two, a personal mission statement. This is a sample. A personal mission statement. So what I'm encouraging you now to think about is, what is my mission? And then try to lay out how you order your life around that. Top of page two, successful organizations see the need to sharpen their focus through the careful explanation of the why, the what, and the how of their enterprise. This is known as the establishment of an organizational philosophy. Once the philosophy is identified, it's distilled into a concise summary called a mission statement. Churches and individuals can benefit from a clearly articulated statement of the biblical purpose, objectives, and goals that dictate how they will accomplish the Lord's business. So what is a mission statement? As noted above, it's a summary of one's philosophy. The term philosophy means love of wisdom. A philosophy is used in this context, in the context of this lesson, is a statement of the principles that guide someone in the wise accomplishment of a task. A clear and complete philosophy of life must answer these kinds of questions. Why am I doing what I do? What's my purpose? What is it I'm to do? What are my objectives? And how am I to do what I do? What are my goals? Now, why is that important? Well, one, it's important because everybody has one. You say, dude, I lost mine. I didn't know I had one. Well, I don't mean you have, a, I don't mean you have an intentional one. I don't mean you have one written out. Most people don't have that. But people are operating unconsciously according to one. Everybody, is, everybody has got 
something that they're pursuing, even if they don't take time to think about it. So everybody has one. And so knowing what it is and consciously and consciously laying it out and intentionally laying it out is better than unconsciously and unintentionally pursuing it. It's important because everybody has one. It's important because it trains our vision on the appropriate target. It gives meaningful guidance to each task that we perform, a benchmark for evaluating our lives, prevents waste and overextending, and it helps us live intentionally. So where do I begin? We'll begin with the end in mind. Imagine a sort of spiritual snapshot of the Christian life. What will we look like if we perfectly live out the answers to the great questions that we looked at? Why am I here? What am I to do? How am I to do it? So what does a mission statement then look like? Well, we've got an example of one for you. And before evaluating the details of it, there are several general observations. A good mission statement is going to be doxological. That just means it is going to have the glory of God at the center. It's going to be God-centered. Truth is, we could have said God-centered. A mission statement must deal with specifics. It's got to be comprehensive enough in the categories. Those are fixed, but there needs to be flexibility in the methodology, how you go about it. All right, and then there are some practical considerations there. Now, if you'll look at page four, you get the beginning of implementing a personal mission statement. So here's a a sample statement, the top of page four, that could apply to any of us. I exist to glorify God. Do you guys think that's a good way way to start? All right. Now, here's the thing that I'm going to beat on in the next several weeks, though. I exist to glorify God in the mission. See, that's the, that's the, that's the constraining then part of it. That constraint sounds negative, but it's actually a very good thing because it helps me make decisions like I talked about last week. I know whether something fits or it doesn't fit because it either advances the mission or it doesn't. Yes, I exist to glorify God, but I exist to glorify God in the, the biblical mission through maturing, maturing obedience to his word in every role of life. That's a mouthful. Just a line, but it's a mouthful. It's got that doxological purpose, but it's also got the, the means through which I'm to pursue the glory of God, the biblical mission, and that as I go over the years, I'm to be maturing in obedience in the various roles that God has assigned to me. Now, what are those roles? Page four. You've got both common roles and individual roles, universal and specific callings, vocations. So here are a bunch of universal things that apply to these six apply to all of us. The Bible teaches that all of us are to be a student of God's word. That all of us are to be sharing God's word. That is witnessing. That all of us are to be servants in God's church. Stewards of God's resources. A seeker of God's intimacy. And by that, I'm talking about prayer and spiritual disciplines. And then a support of God's social order. That is being a good citizen. 
God's called us all to every one of those. And that's why we, and I don't think any of you would argue with that. That's not controversial. Those are common universal roles. So if that's, if God has said, these are roles that all of you are supposed to play, then I should order my life in a way that allows me to do those. But in addition to that, we've got individual callings. These are things some of us have and some of us don't. I'm a, I'm a worker in God's vineyard. Uh, here, if you're, uh, as I said, a housewife is, is still a worker, but you might be someone who is unable to work, and that's why I have it here. So you, you may not be a worker, but most of us are. You may or may not be married, so a husband or wife of a God-given spouse. You may have, may or may not have children, a father of God-given children, and then you may or may not be a pastor, pastor of a God-given flock. I mean, those, all of those are, are things that I have to do. Those are all for me. I, I'm a husband. I've got children. I'm a pastor. And I'm an employee, employee of the church here. So all of those are callings for me. Now, you would fill in your own there. So you might have two of those, you might have five of those, but, but whatever they are, that are your, your circumstances. And then you go to the next step. Once you've identified what the roles that are that you're required to fulfill, now step two is identify the biblical principles that direct how you play those roles. So the Bible not only tells us to do these things, But then the Bible gives some instruction on how to pursue them. So you take those first six that are common to all of us. A student, a sharer, a servant, a a steward, a seeker, a support. And then here are just some statements about how we go about it. As a student of God's word, I must read God's word regularly. And I must learn God's word regularly. I mean, there's reading and studying. That's what we're saying there. And notice we've got passages for those. The Bible tells us to do those. <clears throat> and to do those regularly. Now, do you notice there I've got read and learn in italics? Because remember, here in step two, we're trying to look at how we go about things. These are verbs. That's why I have them in italics. They're the action words. So back on under step one, those are the noun, <clears throat> excuse me, the nouns. I'm a student, a sharer, a servant, a steward, a seeker. But, you know, nouns, <clears throat> as I heard one guy say years ago, nouns are just pompous. They just stand there and announce themselves. Verbs are the workers. Verbs get stuff done. That's the action. And so you, you take those nouns and you put verbs to them, but you put verbs to them from the Bible. So I'm a student, that's the noun, but what do I do? I read and I learn. I'm a sharer, and so I establish redemptive relationships. And I demonstrate exemplary character in those relationships. As a servant of God's church, I use my talents to edify the body. And I cultivate edifying relationships. As a steward of God's resources, I give, I have to give to those in need, and I strive for bodily health. As a seeker of God's intimacy, I commune, 
And as a support of God's social order, as a citizen, I seek to preserve God-ordained institutions. So I've chosen nouns for each of those to play those out. And then you've got your individual roles. And the reasons at the bottom of page 5 I've got blanks there is because your individual roles not, may not be the same as mine. So you've got to go back to page 1 and say, all right, am I a wife? Am I a husband? Am I a parent? What am I? And then lay those out just like the common roles above. All right, that's steps 1 and 2. There are steps 3 and 4 as well. But alas, we will have to do those next week. Okay? So I encourage you to think about these. Begin filling these in for yourself. Because the end game here is for us to try to structure our lives around the roles that God has, has given to us. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to consider what you would have us to do with the brief time that you give us on earth. Lord, this time is, uh, seems very long to us because our, our perspective is narrow and finite. But from the perspective of eternity, our 70 or 80 years or less is very, very brief. Just a moment, your word says. And yet, that moment, this life that you have given to me and given to us, has eternal consequences. And so help me to think of my time here that way. Help us to think of our time that way. Lord, so many of us have not been taught to intentionally think about our lives and order our lives in a way that goes after and pursues the mission you've assigned to us. I pray, Lord, that this will be a time then for many to consider that and to step back and to evaluate, particularly the discretionary time and and uh, resources that you have given us and, and how we use those to the greatest end. Help us this week to begin filling these things in and pondering these things. And then in the weeks to come, to gain clarity on what it is that you have called each of us to do together and to order our lives around it. Go with us, we ask you this week. Grant us safety and bring us back together next Lord's Day. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.